0: They were highly professional soldiers who realized that once you start sticking your nose into an activity like this, your life is at risk.
1: Welcome to My Way, a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way. Listen along as we explore what works, what doesn't, and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose. I'm your host, Sunny Collins. Thanks for listening. Sunny here. Welcome to episode 24 of My Way. I apologize for the late post. Apparently, I had an appointment with a stomach bug that left me horizontal for three days. (laughs) But wow, did I have some incredibly creative fever dreams. So this is the second half of a conversation I had with former Graytonian and pragmatic conservationist Dr. John Hanks. Part of the reason I love producing this podcast is to highlight the links amongst the people I interview. John Hanks lured Sandy Sowler to Grayton. Sandy Sowler recently had her life saved by Dr. Mike Koch. Marshall Rinquist had been trained by Sandy Sowler to deal with bats. And Tommy Sendrick is diving into the world that John Hanks tells you all about in the following conversation. And if you don't know who any of these people are, then go back and listen to previous episodes of the My Way podcast. In addition, John mentions a man named Pat Condy, a name that sort of rung a bell when I interviewed him, but later when I was editing, I remembered him. Pat Condy, who I referred to as the Zimbabwean Santa Claus, is a man that I worked with at the School for Field Studies in Massachusetts about 18 years ago. Aren't the links fantastic? I just love how interconnected everybody is. So, if you listen regularly, you know that I like to keep my episodes around the 25-minute mark. This episode is longer because there was just way too much richness in the conversation, especially about one of my favorite topics, humans, wildlife, and the layers of complications and how to create and maintain healthy habitats for all living things. So listen, learn, share, and enjoy. So of all of all the leaders and influential people that you've met in your life, who would you say left the biggest impression with you?
0: Yeah, I suppose I was influenced by my supervisor at Cambridge, a chap called Roger Short who was um, he was a vet by training, but he was. Um, He was an incredible man. He used to think outside the box on all sorts of issues. He was one of the first chaps as a vet to write a paper on the subject of regular menstruation is highly abnormal. And um, he pointed out that if you go back to the time of most of your grandmothers or great-grandmothers' time, they started puberty much later. It's very clearly documented. Girls now start menstruating 11 or 12, mm-hmm. they, then they started 17, 18. They got married soon afterwards and then having got married they conceived quite quickly, then lactation, um, out menstrual cycles and then into another period of pregnancy, 12 kids. Menopause was earlier than it is now. So in a woman's reproductive lifetime the number of menstrual cycles was very very small because he was either pregnant or lactating. and that's clearly documented. Wow. And then he said you look at young girls now they they start menstruating 11 or 12. Some of them decided they don't want any kids, so they have regular menstrual cycles right through until 45 50. Mm-hmm. And he said that's abnormal. the estrogen surges that go with that and that's resulting in to cervical cancer and breast cancer and so on shouldn't people have a pill, ladies have a pill, where they only menstruate, say, once every three months. Who wants to have a regular monthly period? And uh-huh. he he wrote about this, and I, I remember giving a lecture on that subject as a zoologist in in uh, Natal in at the time, and everyone sort of looked at me and said, gosh, you can't talk about those sort of things. I said, of course you can talk about those sort of things. You have to. And, he, and then he went on to say to the... Um, to the air hostesses as well that um, people flying east west across the Atlantic on a regular basis they got their menstrual cycles totally screwed up because of the, the changes so he recommended to the airlines that they should go on a pill even if they're not sleeping with anyone or worried about getting getting pregnant because of the regularity of their menstrual cycles so he wrote about this as well And I've got one of his original papers on this subject. He was that sort of person, always thinking outside the box. And he was one of the first people to talk about the vital importance of addressing human population growth. It's in anything I write or do, I try to bring it back to the question of human population growth. And nobody is prepared to talk about it now. It really, really worries me. And you look at what's happening in Africa. We have the highest population growth rate in the world. Um, you look at South Africa with massive unemployment and no chance, no matter what growth we have, of dealing with a huge number of young people coming on the labour market. We have to address population growth in this country and bring it down much more. And that's certainly true for the rest of Africa. No. But it's, it's not a topic that you can talk about and an old white guy like me can't bring it up. I've tried to bring it up and I'm accused of being a racist and so on, which is nonsense, right. nothing to do with race, it's due to the its reality that we're a water stress continent, um, we already have huge problems with water here in Cape Town, mm-hmm. Johannesburg now, I'm reading, they're just going to have to start introducing uh, perhaps water rationing or cutting water use down. Just too many people. Mm -hmm. And um, with a huge influx of people coming in for the rest of Africa now, it doesn't make it any easier. We've got to address population growth as an issue. And this is one of Roger Short's absolute hobby horses. He pushed it all the time. And he influenced other people to talk about it. Even Peter Scott, who was um, one of the founders of WWF, once said that if we had wanted to make a big difference in conservation, if all the money we put into conservation projects gone into providing contraceptives in Africa, Mm -hmm. we'd be in a better position. Um, When I was appointed to university in Salisbury, as it was in those days, in Rhodesia, to run a master's course in tropical resource ecology, I also did undergraduate teaching, and I did a a three-week course for our undergraduates on human reproduction, anatomy, physiology, contraception. This was 1972 and um, I was quite a bit ahead of my time I think because I think it was essential that most of the graduates from the course there and those were days when University of um, Rhodesia all the students were white they were all going to become, a lot of them were going to become school teachers and they'd had virtually no sex education at school they were totally ignorant and, and then I, I showed, um, I, I got some family planning films and I showed one of what they were doing in India of the vasectomies on a train station. And um, they were trying to get people to bring the birth rate of India right down. Wow. And I had um, in the front row of the lecture was a, was um, a chap who'd, who'd been in the armed forces. He'd, been up, he'd served on the border and been very active. And he just couldn't take this. He fainted. And, um, you know, when you see, a, um, there's a scrotum, out comes a knife, boom, clip, clip. He just looked at his <laughs> And you have to, to, to get people to talk about these things in a more open way. Right. And that um, I think that was useful. And subsequently, if I've had the opportunity, I try to introduce, at Lopalala Wilderness School, we brought an organisation called Love Life, mm. which is very good. It's doing a good job. And we bring in human population growth. As a key part of any training that we do up there. You know, you look at what happened in Paris and the climate change talks, and mm. hardly any mention of population at all. I it's, mean, it's just almost unbelievable. No,
1: it is the, the taboo topic. You yes. cannot, that is the one thing you cannot talk to others about. Uh,
0: yep. And I think it's it's very difficult for um, a white person to bring it up in this country because immediately right. it's, it's seen as a white person saying, Black people must reduce their births. We're not saying that right. whatsoever, um, but that's the way it's perceived. And then when you have a, um, our ex-president who probably didn't know how many children he had, at least 22 or 23, um, and behaving as he did, he set such a shocking example that we're never going to battle. And, and that's why I think people were reluctant to talk about it. Yeah.
1: What is something that scares you?
0: Gosh, you do ask good questions. (laughs) Um, I suppose a concern, getting back to the subject of population, that it is one of the biggest worries I have in that it impacts on all the work we're trying to do in Africa in the environmental field. You look at the... Protected Area Network in Nigeria for example where the reserves are small um, they're surrounded by people and Nigeria in the year 2050 will have more people than in the whole of the United States and you look at the the future of the Protected Area Network there you look at what's happening in Zambia um, in Zambia Kafue National Park had nine wildlife management areas around the border and when we first went there in 1965 they were some of the finest wildlife areas in in the continent i remember the city fuller was had roan, sable beautiful big damn now every single one of those areas has been occupied by people they're right up on the border of the national park um they've cultivated the land arable land has come in all all the large mammals have gone um and it's happening now increasingly in kenya where The parks are going to have to be fenced they weren't fenced previously because you can't have elephant and lion just moving out and going into arable lands the big issue that's increasing everywhere is human wildlife conflict it's a huge problem everywhere now and it has to be managed and um, that is difficult and of course it's going to get worse and people say gosh lion are going to disappear well Lion will only survive in places where they are securely fenced because you can't have lion just walking out of a park and going and killing people's cattle. It's not gonna happen. So I think a lot of individuals haven't realized that Africa is no longer a Serengeti going from the Cape to Cairo. It's a very naive picture what Africa's like. It is changing, vast transformation is taking place. Um, take Kruger National Park, for example, is now fenced all the way around excepting on part of the eastern boundary but right on the southern boundary you've got people living right up on the boundary that's fenced and you means you have to manage the park well we can probably just about afford to do this here but you go to parks in the rest of Africa um, there's no money for conservation it's, it's not a priority government puts their money in every single park in Africa today is underfunded why because you have to deal With a growing population that needs jobs, education, health facilities, infrastructure, conservation is way down the list. So it's seriously underfunded. Mm. And it worries me that we haven't done enough to get the outside world to understand this. That if wildlife is going to survive, it's going to have to pay its way. And you can't rely on handouts from NGOs and generous people to keep it going. That's the reality. And linked to that... Is the realization we have to look at this thing called conservation triage. And you may be familiar with the concept, but those who are not, triage is something that happened in the First World War when people who were badly wounded were brought into a, um, a first aid station. If they'd lost a couple of legs and an arm, there's very little chance that they would survive. If a chap had just perhaps lost an arm and other injuries, you deal with him first. And conservation triage is saying, where can we realistically have a long term future for a protected area network? And you concentrate and put your money in those. You have to do that. And the rest you're going to have to let go. And people say, gosh, that's sacrilege. You can't even think about that. And I said, you tell me the alternative. What's the point in having a reserve where people are right on the boundary and then increasingly they're moving inside the boundary? Sio Mungwezi National Park in Zambia. It's now got about 8,000 people living inside it. I mean, is that a national park still where people have moved in Mm -hmm. with their cattle, with their arable land? That's what's going to happen. So it gets back time after time that conservation is not getting the money. It should do. And there are just too many people, and there's a great increase in human wildlife conflict. That's the reality we have to get people to understand.
1: Mm -hmm. Who do you feel like are the standout leaders African leaders to think more holistically?
0: Um, I think, as leaders, political leaders, they're very few and far between, uh, unfortunately. Um, the one person, president, who was genuinely interested was Daryl President Kaunda. and he really was interested. When I was working in Zambia, he used to. Take a real interest in the work we were doing in the Wangwa. He'd come down and see what was going on. Um, When Zambia introduced an elephant culling program, he was the person who said, The outside world may not like this, but it is essential because the habitat is being transformed by a huge overpopulation of elephants. This was in 1968 69. And he said, um, I want to convince my cabin that this is a case. And he loaded them all up in a DC-3 and flew them down to Luangwa. And the DC-3 used to be called the Vomit Comet. It was uh, <laughs> it, it pitched up and down and it was a hot October day. In October in Zambia, it's suicide month. It's really hot. It was turbulent. Flew them down to Luangwa and most of them were sick, and they got off the aeroplane and they, <laughs> they gave me such a filthy look. They didn't enjoy being brought down to see what was going on. He was really interested. And... Um, He's followed that up, and he was um, I, he was an honest leader. I do not think he was corrupt in any way whatsoever. He was genuinely interested, and it's difficult to think of any other political leader that comes near to him. Um, what I find so encouraging, and everyone says, gosh, there's no hope for Africa. I say, no, I disagree, because I'm privileged now to work with some really good young emerging black students, um, and leaders who really see what is going on and we have got people like that um mbusa who used to be um, head of parks and then he went on to other jobs he is a leader who i respect enormously he is genuinely interested mm-hmm. matthews poser is another one he was treasurer general of the anc he's really interested in conservation conservation education they talk about it they invest in it he came up to see if this is um I suppose what's happening at, um, at Lapalala Wilderness School, I made a very generous donation after that. Mm. And um, I said to him that look at the people who are passing through the route and going on to become the leaders of the future. They're the ones we have to invest in because they're the ones that are going to make things come right. It's difficult though to think of other countries where you have those same sort of leaders. And um, there are some incredibly competent, dedicated people running the NGO movements, but they're not necessarily in a leadership position. I think NGOs can do a lot to get people thinking in the right way, mm-hmm. but an NGO is not in a position where you can make decisions, unfortunately. One of the biggest problems we face now, which um, no one is prepared to, to talk about, is how do we deal with corruption in... Africa right. and it's not just Africa that's corrupt. I mean Corruption that exists here is because they've been corrupted very often from people from Europe and elsewhere mm-hmm. who pay the bribes to, get, to right. get contracts that's almost become standard practice, right. but when you look at what is happening now in the conservation world where regularly you hear about game rangers and people working in parks even, even a vet who is working in parks getting involved in the illegal wildlife trade, you realise that the temptation to the, um, succumb to the big bucks that goes with rhino horn trade, etc., is something that people find difficult to resist. So mm-hmm. corruption is there. How do you deal with it? You get the names of people involved in the illegal wildlife trade and you try and do something about it. No matter what intelligence information you get, it's still got to be acted upon. And the classic example of this where it went wrong was where we got through this Operation Knock Activity. We got irrefutable evidence that the North Korean embassy was involved in taking horn out of Zimbabwe. And the dossier was handed over to the chief of police in Harare. And he said, yes, I'll take it up. And five days later, he was instructed to drop the case by Mugabe because Mugabe had used the North Korean military to help him suppress rebellion in Matabili land. You know, you have to you have to be aware of the extent of corruption. How do you deal with that? And people will tell you now, they know that, um, they probably know who the people are in Mozambique, the middlemen who are putting the money up yeah. to go and get the rhino horn. And you see, it's, it's often difficult for people to understand this. You can put more money into anti-poaching activities, but as fast as you... Catch a poacher or deter a poacher. More will take their place if there's somebody over the border paying the money to come across because there's so much poverty.
1: And right. Mozambique
0: is one of the poorest countries in the world. There's massive malnutrition, massive poverty. You're living in a situation of poverty, and I come along to you and say, "Here's twenty thousand rand, Christmas, money notes. Go and get me a rhino horn. Boom, you off through the fence. You're going to go and do it." So the people you've got to deal with are the ones who are driving the trade, mm-hmm. the middlemen. And it's difficult because of corruption. You find out who they are, you go to the most angry government, very often you find it goes right through to the top. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with it?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a, there's so many things in my head right now because I think empathy is one thing that's lacking of, you know, seeing these poachers as these dark, evil. Yeah. horses. And in reality, they're just right at the bottom. Yeah. They're carrying out the most important thing, which is getting the horn or the tusk. Yes. But in the end, they're nothing. They're yeah. like the farmer in a way. They get the last scraps yeah. and it's all the middlemen in between who are, and then those right at the top who are profiting off of it. Correct. So if you had the power to solve one problem in the world what would it be
0: well I, I suppose it has to get back again to um, the fact creating an awareness that we live in a finite world and we just cannot allow numbers to continue growing and I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is not just numbers growing but people moving wanting to go to more affluent lifestyles and they have only got to look at the adverts that go out on television where everybody looks at pictures and they see it's they want a bigger car, bigger house, a bigger phone. It's all consumption. Mm-hmm. And um, as people move into better homes, they want swimming pools and water on tap all the time. Mm-hmm. Where's it going to come from? We just don't have the resources available. Mm-hmm. And you look at China now is desperate for arable land to feed their population. That's why increasingly Chinese people are coming to Africa. Africa has, um, it, it's seen as a place where they can still get land to grow rice. Rice has been grown all over the place for export. There's a huge demand for our hardwoods from, from China, um, which is having an enormous impact. That's not going to stop because as more people get up to a higher lifestyle, so the demand for these things increase. And we have not got across the message. That we live in a finite world and the most one of the most basic resources is water the second is food security why don't we talk about food security enough Um, it worries me that we're putting a huge amount of money into rhino conservation what about pollinators Um, without pollinators we, we our food security goes down it's very very simple to see that and yet if i set up an ngo to conserve pollinators would i get any support not sexy Rhinos, elephants, boom. You can get any number of people contributing to it, but we have to get an awareness that pollinators are disappearing, honeybee populations are getting clobbered. It's going to have a huge impact on our food security. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets back again to sustainable living.
1: Just talk about the subject of your book in a nutshell.
0: Um, Operation Knock was an initiative that was started at the suggestion of the Founder President of WWF, Prince Bernard of the Netherlands. And it started when I was accompanying him on on a tour of some of the WWF projects. And we were in the Zambezi Valley on the Zimbabwean side. This was about 1986 when poachers were coming across the border from Zambia and starting to make a big dent on the rhino population in the Zimbabwe side and WWF at the time was funding a helicopter to do anti-poaching patrols was putting money into the usual anti-poaching activities and he said to me we're not getting it right we can put more and more money into this but who are the people who are driving the trade we've got to chase the people who are putting up the money and we've got to find those individuals and put a stop to it and he said to me, if you can find a group of people who would do this work, I would fund it, but um, it mustn't be seen as a WWF project. And he said, anyone who's going to do this investigation, it's going to be a high-risk activity, and it's not suitable to have this listed as a WWF project. said, find a group of people, and I will fund it. And to cut a long story short, I made contact with um, a group from the SAS, Special Air Services, people who had done similar surveillance work, undercover work in Northern Ireland and they understood these techniques they were highly professional soldiers who realised that once you start sticking your nose into an activity like this your life is at risk, it's, it's a very dangerous activity and I got hold of this group and they said they'd be very interested in undertaking this work. We did a feasibility study and presented it to Prince Bernard and he said, right, this looks the sort of people we're looking for and I will fund it. And it's not a cheap exercise to get a group out in the field. And um, he persuaded the Queen of the Netherlands to sell a picture she didn't particularly like at Sotheby's. It went on auction and it was sold and it raised, I think, over £600,000, which in their days was a lot of money. That was made available and what was called Operation Lock was started and group came out. They based themselves in Johannesburg because that was seen as one of the major places where Rhino Horn was leaving Africa. It was very easy to take it out, take it down to um, Johannesburg, fly it out, very little control was taking place. They based themselves in Johannesburg and made great progress um, until the cover on the whole operation was blown and then it came to a halt but we made a lot of progress and in the process got to understand the level of corruption that existed in the different countries we're working with and how we needed to also train field staff to do that job better and it's interesting to see um, i read a bbc report just a couple of days ago that british sas experts are now actively involved in several african countries training people to do this type of work what we started all that time ago if it continued we might be in a much stronger position than we are today
1: mm. so what was it specifically about rhino and elephant that pulled you in
0: well my PhD was on elephants mm-hmm. so I started off elephants and, um, in Zambia and um, then I had students working on rhino population pat conney did his masters on rhino down in Carl national park working in the tar parks board as head of research for three years you obviously got very much involved with the whole rhino situation there and then going to wwf in switzerland in 1985 um, and being in charge of the africa program you saw it firsthand what was happening with the black rhino population, where from 100,000 in 1970, it by then was down to about six or 7,000 are still declining. Mm-hmm. And when you see that the Wango Valley in Zambia, where we lived and worked for, for, for three years, when we left there, there were about 4,000 rhinos there, and they were completely eliminated um, by 1986-87 and you realise that this is what's happening and a lot of countries now have lost all their black rhino population in the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. Something has to be done about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that got me interested in the whole question of how do we investigate the middlemen driving the trade and then it goes on to, from that, um, how do we make sure that rhinos have a secure future if they don't pay their own way? They have to, we cannot rely on donations all the time. And that is why the last chapter of my book raises the question of the opportunities through a legal trade in Rhino Horn. As a pragmatic conservationist, we can't just pretend that national parks exist in isolation, they're surrounded by people living in poverty. We have to make sure that something is done before they get benefits of conservation, number one. Then we have to realise that every single national park in Africa today is underfunded. And it's not going to get any better because of the demands on government. Conservation is way down the list. Is it realistic to depend on donations by bilateral aid agencies or individuals to keep these parts going? The answer is no, because the costs are prohibitive. Um, We need millions and millions of dollars for the protected area network. Where is it going to come from? And I believe we have to now look at making sure that one life has a value. We appreciate that value and to get it to go back into the parks and into the communities that uh, live nearby. And that's why I'm one of a number of people who are very supportive of a new initiative that's opened up in Stellenbosch called the African Wildlife Economy Institute. And it's the first institute of its kind in Africa that is addressing the whole question of the wildlife economy. What does that mean? It means that here's wildlife as a resource. How should it be managed? And how do we make sure that the benefit from the use of that wildlife goes back to its conservation for perpetuity? And the classic example of that is legal trade in rhino horn. Closing down the trade has failed. It's been closed down for over 20 years. Huge amounts of money are going into it still to protect rhinos in the field, and yet they're still being lost. One rhino a day at least is being lost. It's going to continue until we get people to realise that A rhino horn doesn't matter what it's used for, there is a demand for it. If you cut it off and there's no trauma to the animal, mobilise the animal, cut it off, there's no pain, 10 minutes later it has an antidote and it gets up and runs off. You do that eight times in its lifetime. And that generates a huge amount of money. A rhino alive should be worth a lot more than one rhino that's dead. An initiative that Swaziland has started and it's a very compelling argument that we have to get CITES to change and to allow a legal trade in rhino horn with the benefits to go back from those who are looking after the animals. You take the private landowners, there's huge numbers of rhinos still on private land in South Africa, and yet they get, the private landowners get not one cent from government to help them. John Hume is a private landowner, he's bred successfully over a thousand rhinos on his property. He doesn't get any help from the NGO communities. He gets no help from government. That's wrong. Mm. But allow a legal trade in rhino horn and suddenly they're going to explode. Why did white rhinos increase in number from the small number in the town? Because the private sectors got involved. They were allowed to hunt them and use them. And everybody wanted rhinos because they had a value. At the moment, because they have no value as living animals, people want to get rid of them. They don't want them on their property. They've become a liability. It's just a no-brainer when you look at it like this. And the same for other aspects of wildlife. If you look at the populations of wildlife in South Africa, it's absolutely blossomed and increased because of sustainable use of wildlife. Um, wildlife is used for meat production, it's used for safari hunting, it's used for tourism, non-consumptive use and so on. doesn't matter whether you like hunting or not. You have to realise that this generates money that we need. That's the way life is going to go. So the African Wildlife Economy Institute, which is a very important initiative that's just starting up at University of Stellenbosch, I think is something that is seriously needed. Mm -hmm. We're short of resource economists. You know, you give me the name of one or two resource economists who can answer the questions we're talking about now and come up with objective statements of fact on the value of wildlife. Mm -hmm. You look at the work done in Namibia, um, which Chris Brown and his colleagues have done. Absolutely excellent work with the communities there. And Namibia has got examples of communities who are now totally committed to wildlife conservation because they get cash benefits from the use of wildlife in their lands. Mm. they are streets ahead of anywhere else in Africa. Contrast that with Kenya, where there's very little sustainable use of wildlife. And their populations are declining drastically. Mm-hmm. It speaks for itself. It's common sense.
1: And what and what percentage of the economy is in Kenya? I wonder comes from tourism.
0: Well, it's it's obviously huge, but that is now increasingly under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, parks are having to be fenced Nairobi parks are having to be fenced. There's big invasions of cattle recently into Salvo. It's it's a huge problem there. Mm-hmm. Um, like Kipia area, there areas been invasions of people there. They want the the uh, private lands have been under threat, and it's going to continue because Kenya's population is growing so sort rapidly of yeah. as well. So it's it's a bleak picture up there, and even elsewhere, salu is under threat from hydroelectric dams and mining. Um, countries look at these areas and they think, well, we've got to generate money. Money from tourism is in the more popular places is fine, but. The smaller, more remote areas, this handful of people that go there, it's not going to keep them going. No chance. And even Kruger Park, with what 1.2 million visitors a year, still requires subsidy from NGOs and a lot of money coming in from government. It can't make ends meet. The costs are huge now. Maintaining the fence, anti-poaching activities. If if you're going to keep elephants and lions from breaking out. Daily patrols of the fence, regular maintenance, Mm -hmm. that's just part of it. Mm -hmm. And then dealing with the infrastructure inside, it's it's a huge, hugely expensive exercise, which people just totally underestimate. And we can't rely on Mm demos from the outside world to keep this going.
1: And one of the quotes in your book was the age of increasing extinction of species is one of unprecedented access to information, which is fed to us every second of the day by electronic transmissions that conveniently separate us from the real world of the sights, sounds, smells, and diversity of haptic sensations of a field situation. Can you talk about that a little bit, especially as it relates to social media and what social media has done to harm the, you know, yeah. on the ground conservation yeah. efforts?
0: I, well, I think part of the effort is, uh, but part of the problem is that um, the perception has been created that Africa is still one big Garden of Eden. Um, it's, it, it's uh, when you see the wildlife films that go out, people have no idea the reality of the continent the extent of land transformation that's taking place, how much, how many areas are being lost almost for good because of what's happening with land transformation and patterns of human settlement. And I think when appeals are put out for individual species, you can understand how through social media, people will respond to pictures of a rhino with his face hacked off. It's human nature and when people see pictures of Cecil the lion being shot in Zimbabwe, um, social media come out of uh, absolute outrage and say, this is absolutely terrible. How can a dentist from America go to Zimbabwe and shoot a lion? That um, it's unacceptable. And all the fuss about Cecil the lion um, got all over the press in the States, all around the world, in fact. And I remember at the time, those a young Zimbabwean doing a PhD in, in Washington and he read about Cecil he said, gosh, Cecil's been killed, who's Cecil? He thought it was a person living in the community and he said, I cannot believe that all this fuss is being made about one lion when people's lives are threatened daily by wildlife throughout Zambia, by hippo, by lion, by elephants. Surely we've got things wrong. Mm. We must start talking more about people and not just about wildlife. And there's a very good film that's just been made, and I'll, I'll give you the link to it by... It, it tells the story of what happened in Lake Kariba, when Lake Kariba Dam went in. And a lot of the Tonga people had to be resettled. Thousands of people had to be resettled. And they were put in noise and dumped in totally inhospitable places. Then an operation called Operation Noah started got huge publicity of rescuing the animals that were caught by the rising water, Lake Kariba. And animals like Impala, which was common elsewhere, were at great expense, were caught and moved and translocated. And millions went in to rescuing animals and a minuscule amount of money in comparison went into resettling people who were moved. And all those people said, gosh, animals are far more important than people. and. It was the way it was portrayed, Operation Noah got huge support, understandably, Mm. but if you said I want money to help resettle the Tonga people, wow, in those days no one was really interested. It's a very, very good film, I'm going to give you the link at the end, and you must watch it please, right through to the end, because at the end, the Tonga people, who were absolutely anti-wildlife as a result of this, Gradually came round to accepting wildlife on their land when they could make money out of it. And now they've got areas of their land opened up for hunting, sustainable use, meat production, and so on. They will look after those animals, but they didn't want to previously. And it, that's the message we have to put across that right. it's, uh, Africa is not Europe. It's a very different situation. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look at Europe's track record of getting rid of wildlife and wildlife habitats. Right. When did you last fly into Amsterdam? look out of the window, totally transform landscape exactly. everywhere and um, Africa is not going to be like Netherlands but it is being transformed and we're not going to have one life running around everywhere. Mm. It's going to survive, it's got to have a value and that's the message we're going to start putting across.
1: Thanks for joining me for the last half of my conversation with pragmatic conservationist, Dr. John Hanks. I think my favorite part of the story is that Operation Lock began with the sale of two paintings. I just find it funny how art can literally save lives. I highly recommend you read his book, Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching. It's a fascinating read for anyone interested in human wildlife conflict in Africa or anywhere in the world. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time!